0: Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm thrilled to uh, bring this special treat to you today. Uh, This episode comes actually from a recording that took place back on May 11th uh, on the RTS Washington uh, campus. It is an evening lecture that was provided by Dr. James Eglinton from the University of Edinburgh. In this lecture, he's talking about a recent translation project that he's been a part of um, that's recently been published. It's called Personality and Worldview by J. H. Bavink. Okay, so you can pick up a copy of this now. It's been published and it's available to us in the United States. Um, Now you may notice this is J. H. Bavink, not Herman Bavink. This is his nephew, Johann Bavinck, who is a notable missiologist and theologian in his own right. And in this work, Personality and Worldview, he's talking about the ways in which humans receive and communicate the gospel cross-culturally, cross-ethnically, cross-linguistically, and what needs to happen in that kind of work. And so this is a very important contribution, I think, to the conversation of missiology, but more broadly speaking, of communicating the gospel to one another. And so I know that this will be a treat for you, and we're thrilled that we get to offer it to you. So without further ado, here's Dr. Edwinson.
1: Thank you, um, Gray and Scott, for your warm welcome. I think my mic is on, yes. So um, in the first place, thank you to again to Gray, um, to Scott, to Jennifer, and all here at RTSDC for the invite to come and speak to you uh, and to do this book launch for um, Personality and Worldview by Johan Hermann Bavink. Um, so this is The Book in Question by J.H. Bavink, a book that was first published in Dutch in 1928. It's a, a great little book that somehow became a forgotten treasure, a treasure that got lost, but it has now been released in English for the first time. As Grace said earlier on today, we were up in Canada um, and uh, we were there for the, the Canadian launch of the book that Gray wrote with Corey Brock, N- Neo-Calvinism, A Theological Introduction. Uh, but there's a really big difference between what Gray had to do at that book launch and what I'm doing today uh, at this book launch, which is that Gray had to field a lot of tough and direct questions because he actually wrote the book that he was <laughs> launching. <laughs> and he, he had no, no wiggle room at all there. He couldn't swerve any of them. And in any case, he answered them with, with style, with great aplomb. In my case, I'm in the rare and luxurious position of launching a book that I didn't write, <laughs> a, a book uh, without being the original author. I'm just the humble translator of Personality and Worldview, a curator of the text, but not its owner or its original author. So if you have any really tough, direct questions about the book, I'm actually quite at liberty to swerve them entirely <laughs> because it's not really my book. But I'll, I'll launch it anyway. So Personality and Worldview by Johann Hermann Bavink. In the first place, who was J. H. Bavink? Gray gave you a very short snippet there of who he was. Uh, He was born in 1895, which seems like a long time ago. It's not really in the grand scheme of things, but he died in 1964, which for some of you is not that far back. Um, For some of you, maybe that still seems like a really long time ago, but if we're comparing him to Herman Bavink, who died in 1921, 1964 is, is a very different world to 1921. So we're thinking of someone who lived much closer to our own time. <coughs> he was Dutch, he was a neo-Calvinist pastor in the Netherlands and a few congregations there, but he also spent two periods in Indonesia on Java as a, a missionary. He's also taught missiology for decades in the Netherlands after his time on Java at both the Free University of Amsterdam and also the Theological School in Kampen. Now I could leave you with those details as a bare-bones microbiography of J. H. Bavink. Um, but the elephant in the room, I think, is, um, at least for reformed Christians, is that as well as the, you know, the microbiography, the bare-bones details, Johann Hermann also happens to have a very noticeable and notable surname. He's a Bavink, a nephew as, of Hermann Bavink, as Grace said, and Hermann Bavink being the great dogmatician of the Neo-Calvinist movement. At a place like this at RTSDC where you have Bavinckistas like uh, like Grace Utanto and, and Jennifer Patterson, um, Herman Bavinck needs no introduction. There are some surnames that open doors wherever you go. There are probably some surnames that close a lot of doors too. It's probably not a lot of fun if you have one of those, but there are some surnames that are very advantageous in this world. And uh, in reformed circles for reformed reading uh, audiences, it's probably quite useful uh, in some very immediate sense if you happen to be Herman Bavinck's nephew because as a writer you instantly have a degree of name recognition. Uh, last year I was speaking to a couple of Dutch theologians who asked what I was reading at the moment. So I started to talk enthusiastically about J.H. Bavink, and one of them said, oh yeah, J.H. Bavink. We read a chapter of his work at seminary decades ago, but I haven't read anything else by him. I suppose having the Bavinck surname really helped him, but if he wasn't a Bavinck, would, would you even be reading him? Would we be having this conversation? Uh, it's the same kind of conversation in theological circles that you might hear um, if someone is working out whether anyone would be interested in Marcus Bart if he didn't happen to be Karl Bart's son. Now, I'm British, uh, as you can tell, and like all British people, I think and speak primarily in Shakespearean idiom, as we all do in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> so when this Dutch friend asked me the question, the thing that arose in my mind was, what's baving? It is nor hand nor foot, nor arm nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh be some other name, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell a sweet. So the question is, that's from Romeo and Juliet for the non-Brits. Would a J.H. Bavinck, by any other name, smell as sweet or or get away from Romeo and Juliet? Would he read as well, prove as instructive, uh, as thought-provoking or or as creative if he happened to be called something else? Now, of course, at one level, this kind of historical hypothetical isn't something that we can entertain with a lot of seriousness because, um, like it or not, J.H. Bavink was a Bavink. He studied under his uncle at the Free University before he moved to Germany for his PhD, which was on psychology, but focused on the medieval German mystical theologian Henry Suso. A big part of why J. H. Bavink merits our attention is precisely because he was a Bavink. Personality and Worldview is a text um, where he builds on his uncle's work on Christian worldview in creative, important, constructive ways. He's inexplicable without that link to his uncle. And in fact, when you get to know him, if you know his uncle's work a bit, uh, you wouldn't want him to be anything else other than another Bavinck coming along. I give you a bare bones introduction then, a moment ago, um, but I want to try and capture your imagination differently by presenting J. H. Bavink through his place in the neo-Calvinist tradition, um, not just because, he doesn't just get a place at the table because his name is Bavink. That would literally be uh, nepotism as a nephew, okay? So we're not doing that. Uh, but his place in the tradition because of the, the way that his work and his voice add to that tradition. When you think of J.H. Bavink, I want you to try and imagine someone who combines really attractive, virtuous traits from, uh, from three n- Christians who will probably need no introduction or little introduction to you. And they are C.S. Lewis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Hudson Taylor. Okay so hopefully names that are familiar to you but I'll give you a little bit of detail. Uh, so C.S. Lewis, earlier this year Westminster Seminary Press released the new edition of another one of J.H. Bavinck's books, it's called The Church Between Temple and Mosque and it's J.H. Bavinck's reformed theological account of non-Christian religions and then within that uh, a reformed explanation of the uniqueness of Christianity vis-a-vis other religions. And the introduction to this new edition was written by another Brit, uh, by the missiologist Dan Strange. And in the introduction, um, Dr. Strange, I love being able to say that. um, (laughs) uh, So Dr. Strange describes J.H. Bavink as a writer who was fascinated by and very perceptive towards the texture, the complexity and, and the messiness of human beings which gave him what, what Dan Strange calls, uh, calls it an impressionistic and suggestive style of writing. And that's a very apt way actually to describe a lot of how J.H. Bavink communicates and it makes him quite different to Herman Bavink. I don't think any of us would say that Herman writes with an impressionistic and suggestive style of writing. J.H. Bavin's prose was never turgent. He was a wonderfully light writer And that made translating this book really a a big challenge because I wanted to carry that over into the English version. His his prose is marked by a liveliness, by a lightness of touch um, with regular and and often highly original uh, illustrations to communicate his point. And he carries you um, through quite weighty material with this light touch that makes it quite beautiful. That's why it was Corey Brock, I think, who first called him the C.S. Lewis of the Neo-Calvinist tradition. And I agree, I think traditions really need a C.S. Lewis of, of their own. C.S. Lewis, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The anti-Nazi Lutheran theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, died as a martyr. again, uh, probably in a context like this, a story that, um, that you will already have some familiarity with. J.H. Bavink did not uh, die as a martyr. But I don't make the Bonhoeffer comparison flippantly, because J.H. Bavink lived through World War II. And he did so in Amsterdam under Nazi occupation. And he did so as a resistance theologian, uh, as many neo-Calvinists were. And many of those neo-Calvinists were martyred. Um, and I tried to get into some of that context the, the afterword to my biography of Hermann Bavink, looking at the Bavink families, uh, another branch of the Bavink family's experience of that. One of J.H. Bavink's uh, uh, most uh, superb works is already out in English, it's called Between the Beginning and the End, and it is an exceptional work in reformed biblical hermeneutics and redemptive historical hermeneutics that is written in context as a channeling of that theological tradition to reject Hitler and the claims of Nazism. Um, it's, It's an exceptional book written during World War II under Nazi occupation. It was written in the basement of their house in Amsterdam, and with thick curtains over the the windows to black everything out from the outside. So where did the light come from to write this book? J.H. Bavinck set up a bicycle generator in the basement so that his children would pedal to power a (laughs) light bulb so that he could write this profound anti-Nazi neo-Calvinist biblical theology. So the Dietrich Bonhoeffer comparison is not flippant. I think it's really meaningful. Hudson Taylor. Now, Hudson Taylor, as I'm sure you'll know, was a missionary to China and who was distinctive in the history of missiology in China because of the way he went native, so being very different to a lot of his uh, fellow Western missionaries who, uh, who dressed and acted like aliens from a far country. Hudson Taylor dressed like a local and, uh, and embedded himself in local culture. J.H. Bavinck had these two periods, as I said, as a missionary on Java. In the first period, he was a pastor to an expat congregation so Dutch workers in the Dutch East Indies as it was at that point, are very westernized Asians. But in his second period, he went back and was very different to that, and he really went native. He took a Javanese name, became a youth pastor to Javanese youth, and he wrote theological works, local language, under his Javanese name. In this phase of life, he gained a nickname, the White Javanese, and he described himself in this point as having been born with an Eastern soul. Uh, he became an expert uh, amongst his contemporaries on lots of aspects of Javanese culture. So he, he, he is like a neo-Calvinist Hudson Taylor as well. He was a remarkable figure. In many ways, <coughs> this is where it's gonna get really controversial, he was more biographically interesting than his uncle. and I hope that doesn't undermine any biographers of Herman Bavink <laughs> um, or people who've spent years writing biographies of his uncle but J.H. Bavinck was someone with quite a story to tell. Really hope somebody writes a biography of him one day. So J.H. Bavink, I hope I have your attention with the kind of person we're talking about then. Uh, so personality and worldview. As I mentioned, it first came out in Dutch in 1928. It became a forgotten text, and this is the first time that it has ever been translated in English. But you might be wondering, if the book is so good, why was it forgotten in the first place? And to answer that we have to think a little bit about the history of the mid 20th century in Europe and in the Netherlands specifically. The book came out in 1928 and if you look at Dutch literature in the 1930s and in the early 1940s this is a book that people spoke about regularly. Its ideas were influential, you find it being cited a lot and being critically reviewed by Neo-Calvinists and also non-Neo-Calvinists as well. But its influence was halted abruptly by World War II. And there are lots of different reasons for that. So the, the way that the war decimated the, the print industry, also the, the, the readership as well. Um, but as well as that, after World War, uh, uh, and, and during the war, as I mentioned already, J.H. Bavink has to shift into a, what the Dutch b- theological book industry became under Nazi occupation, which was clandestine writing in basements and writing anti-Nazi theology. So he has to shift into something quite different because the needs of the day are so, uh, are so uh, exacting and so difficult and so pressured. But then after World War II, du- the, the Dutch theological literature world um, began again uh, in a non-clandestine sense but the world of Dutch theological writing became absorbed overwhelmingly in the response to Karl Barth, who was making huge waves in theology after World War II, after Nazism, and J. H. Baving also then has to take part in that too, so we find him interacting with Karl Barth after World War II, and his own writings reflect that. So for a few, uh, quite a complex web of reasons, interaction with this text dried up in those decades, and of course he, he died in 1964. But in that period of his life, we find him writing on lots of different things. If you're a New Testament person, he also wrote a complete commentary on the New Testament uh, in that phase of life. So he's really diverse in the range of things that he's trying to do, and it's a very good commentary. Um, So he dies in 1964, and his own disciples were often from other countries, and they took his ideas to their countries, but his works remained mostly untranslated, so the books didn't go with the ideas. So the flow of his ideas is more organic in that sense. But he was actually, he became mostly forgotten in his own country until the Dutch missiologist Paul Visser wrote the first PhD thesis on him in 1997. So this was a forgotten text. Um, I came across it um, in God's providence um, in a box of books by the Bavinks that was given to me very kindly by a member of the Bavinck family who gave me this box of books in 2010. And um, it sat there unread and actually I I cataloged that it was there but I was working through all these other books by Hermann Bavink before I moved on to the the Johann Hermann Bavink books so it sat there unread until the Covid pandemic in 2020 when I was supposed to be on sabbatical and had plans to do other things but our library was closed and we all had to stay at home and I had to um, just use the books that I had very easy access to. So I moved on from the Hermann Bavink to the Johann Hermann Bavink. And then the text of uh, the title of this book, Persönlichkeit und Weltbeschauung, Personality and Worldview, uh, caught my eye. And I thought, okay, I need to um, make some headway into the J.H. Bavink books. I'll read this one. And the title caught my eye in the first place uh, because I'd spent a lot of time working on Herman's book, Christian Worldview, which I co-translated with Gray and with Corey. Hermann's book, Christian Worldview, makes an excellent case um, for the importance of worldview to Christianity and it gives a, a very useful uh, approach to worldview um, in showing us that worldview really, r- rather than it being some kind of rapid information dump, just, you know, five points on a, on a whiteboard and you just sign up and say, yes, I agree with it and now I have a Christian worldview. Uh, Herman Bavink's book shows that really we should think of worldview as something that you build very slowly. It's it's like like building a map of of wise navigation and living in the world, and that takes a long time. So he he gave us this very helpful way of thinking about worldview as a slow process of map making, but that book still leaves unanswered some quite important questions. Open questions like, well, what should we make about people who don't care about building a worldview? The book leaves you, I think if you read it, and if you're convinced by it, you leave it with the sense that worldview really matters. Sure. But also a lot of people don't seem to live in the light of a very wise or careful worldview. So what should we make of people like that? So there's still a lot of, a lot of questions that are left unanswered. And J.H. Bavink, his uh, uncle's student, was aware of those shortcomings. And this book, Personality, I think is his attempt to answer those questions um, and to, to, to overcome some of the shortcomings of his uncle's very fine work. I don't want to try and squeeze everything from this book into a single short talk, but I do want to use the rest of my time tonight to, um, to give you two pointers that I think will help you make sense of the book. So the first thing is the book's novel contribution, which is a distinction between a worldview and what J. H. Bavinck introduces as a world vision. Okay, so I'll try and explain that to you really briefly, so that if you read the book, when you read the book, optimistic because I'm in America, right? Scottish people have to be a bit more bleak than that. When you read the book, <laughs> um, that, that this distinction will make a bit of sense. Um, that's the first thing, and the second is just a tip, that a, a pro tip uh, slash encouragement for when you do start reading the book, to make sure that you don't give up at one particular point halfway through, when the going gets really tough for a moment. Kay? So, uh, first thing, world view and world vision. Now one of those terms, world view, is probably already quite familiar to you and the other, much less so, world vision. So what do they mean? What's the difference between them? This book begins with a paradoxical claim, uh, which is the the twofold statement that everyone has a world view and almost no one has a world view. so it's an eye-catching paradox, but what does he mean by that? And he immediately starts to set out what he means by the claim. Worldviews are everywhere. Worldviews are inestimably important. They, they are real, and it's foolish to ignore them. No nobody, no human being in the world is unaffected by worldview. No human is explicable without reference to worldview. There is not a single person in this room, in this city, on this continent, on this planet. He free of the influence of worldviews. And in that sense, they really, really matter. But at the same time, there are very few people in this, uh, in this world, in the human race, who as individuals have truly mastered something as complex, as capacious, uh, as a worldview, as virtuous as a worldview, whose view of the world is broad and as capacious, who've taken the time and effort to build out a map of the world that enables them to move and to see very far indeed, and to do so with godly wisdom and sophistication. People who've done that are are very rare. So in that sense, worldviews are everywhere, but if we start thinking about individuals, worldviews are are fleetingly rare. So there's a paradox there that he begins the book with. So what he is getting at, in this paradox is the question that Herman Bavinck's book, Christian Worldview, leaves unanswered. If worldviews are really important like that, but they're very difficult to build up, if the mapmaking takes, will take your whole life, um, this careful task of cartography in God's world, okay? So so we're not thinking about worldview just as a set of abstract points that you can learn quickly and easily, if if worldview rather is the slow, painstaking search for wisdom and for the truth about the creator and the creation, what do we make of of the paradox that on on the one hand, there are people, very few people, but there are people who have made extensive and useful maps. There are people who have developed rich, deep worldviews. But on the other hand, most human beings don't care they don't pour over those maps, even though the maps are there, and they don't make their own maps. But at the same time, somehow, there's a trickle-down effect where drops uh, from those maps land in our lives, and we benefit from them, and we're influenced by them. So, but, but we don't make the most of, of those maps. So what should we think of that? How d- uh, and, and that's a big unanswered question from Herman's book. So J.H. Bavinck's contribution mm-hmm. is to say that while there are maps out there, and there are, are some, uh, some very virtuous people who have sought the truth so rigorously and so carefully that they have developed what, what truly deserve to be called worldviews, most people don't use those maps. Instead of relying on maps, they rely on a different navigational tool, which is, rather than a map, a compass. And a compass, of course, is different to a map. A map does give you a view of the world. You locate where you are, but you can also say that in a thousand miles in that direction, there's something else there. And this is the shape of what's over there. And this is what I expect to find. And I'll navigate the world because of the map. A compass doesn't do that. A compass instead is is something that orients you in a particular direction right now, right here where you are. A compass can tell you, um, okay, well, which way am I going here or there? but it can't tell you what is a thousand miles in that direction, it just doesn't do that. It's a different kind of navigational tool. So in personality and worldview, that compass is what J.H. Bavinck calls a world vision, and it's not the same as a map, which is a worldview. So we all have a compass, we all have a world vision, but actually v- we don't, none of us by default has a world view, and instead the challenge is how do you move from one to the other So world view and world vision are not the same. In this book, we have the argument that you get one of these things, a world vision, a compass, simply by being born a human into a human community. And that community gives you, uh, it it, it orients you in a particular way in the world. It gives you a set of intuitions, a set of basic assumptions. uh, um, It it programs you with with an autopilot setting that, that will carry you through life in the world um, but it, it doesn't require you to take the wheel yourself and work out, okay, how do I drive this thing? That's a world vision. Um, but the other thing that you don't have by default, a world view, that's something that you only get by real effort and you do it by putting your, the assumptions of your world vision, um, the, the way that your um, the community that forms you tells you the world is you have to put that to the test. And when you do, then you start to move from world vision to world view. But it takes a lot of effort as you upgrade from the compass to the map. Now that insight is, it's actually huge. And when you see what JH Bavinck is doing, if you agree with it, it then becomes very hard to unsee and you wouldn't really want to because it's such a useful way of thinking about life in the world. Um, Tim Keller wrote the foreword to the book and uh, He called this insight from J.H. Bavinck a game changer for how we think about worldview, and I I agree with him on that. I think that it is such a useful insight. Um, The basic contours of the world vision idea, of course, they're not absolutely unique to J.H. Bavinck. It's a very similar idea to what you find in Charles Taylor if you read him on The Social Imaginary, but J.H. Bavinck develops this as part of a bigger constellation of ideas within reformed theology, uh, within reformed worldview thinking, and most profoundly, he, he uses this to help us understand the gospel because the gospel is the, this cru- is the thing by which we put our world visions to the test. It's the, it's the measuring stick for our world visions with what needs to go and what needs to stay. Um, it shows us who we are and what we must become. Now, if, if your sense of the meaning of the term worldview has been formed in the context of American evangelicalism, and I ask you the question, show me a worldview, help me find one, your instinct might well be to direct me to an individual person, um, to the individual people who say they subscribe to a worldview. Well, my friend Bill over there, he says he has a Christian worldview, so let's go over there to him, and that's where we can find a worldview, because he he has one. So it's directed towards an individual, it's the place where you will find a worldview. And in that way of thinking, um, worldview becomes a tool that we use to interpret and to make sense of individuals to make sense of individual people. But in J.H. Bavink's way of thinking, where world vision and worldview are different, you can't actually do that. Um, What you need to interpret an individual is the idea of world vision. So world vision then uh, is is a, a very useful tool in this book to make sense of people. It explains individuals And that frees up the concept of worldview to do something different, which is rather than explaining individuals, it explains collectives. It explains cultures and civilizations. So if if I ask ask J.H. Bavink, show me a worldview, where is it? He won't point you to an individual. Um, Instead, he will point you to Western culture or uh, particular Eastern cultures. So you'll say, if you understand the Confucian worldview, OK, find a Confucian country and think in in really broad terms about how people live together in that country. But don't expect to find this all perfectly articulated in one person. Instead, use world vision to understand the person and have worldview to understand the collective. And he would say the same about Western people. Show me a, um, a Christian worldview. Okay, let's talk about Western culture. And really and what shaped it? What formed it? Where did it come from? Why is it as it is? And they use worldview to explain collective uh, rather than individual. Now once you understand J.H. Beving's worldview, world vision distinction, as I said, it's very hard to unsee in the world and it's a real upgrade on Herman's work um, and, I, and I hope that saying this um, and just giving you a fleeting glimpse into what he does in the book gives you motivation to read it um, and to wrestle with that new way of thinking about worldview as it relates to cultures and world vision as it relates to individuals. But having said, you have to read the book, Um, I want to give you a tip as well, a piece of encouragement on how to read it so that you don't give up halfway through. Mm. So the book itself begins in typical J.H. Bavinck fashion as a beautifully accessible piece of writing. Um, He starts off with this paradox to catch your eye, that everyone has a worldview and no one has a worldview. And then he lures you in with that and then starts to give you illustrations, um, actually from the world of work. Goes through a list of people and their jobs and explains that actually for most of us in Western culture, our jobs are we use as our world visions. Uh, the primary thing I orient my life on is what I do professionally, and I, I look at the world. I, I have a, a vision of the world through through my job. And the book begins then um, very accessibly, uh, and explains in that illustrated way what a world vision will may well look like in your life as a Western late modern Western person. So then uh, having oriented yourself in the book, and you can identify with these uh, with the people that he uses as illustrations, he then starts to move on from the world visions that we all have to explain that occasionally in history there have been people who have been extremely rigorous in their search of the truth and in testing their world visions. And they, they make a, a really noble ascent up some kind of mountain that is a search for truth towards a, wor- a world view. And these people become highly complex thinkers. Uh, sophisticated philosophers. So he starts telling you that there are people who who have done this and then who go on to exercise a lot of influence on others. And there are two philosophers in particular that he thinks um, go very high up that mountain. And they are Immanuel Kant and Baruch Spinoza. So J.H. Baving then, at this point in the book, starts to expound their philosophy. And all of a sudden, um, unless you happen to know a bit about Spinoza, even if you do, Spinoza is tough. Kant is not an easy read. Um, But if you don't have a background in philosophy you feel like you've come a long way from the book's opening illustrations which are so accessible. And you have to have a bit of faith in him as a writer at this point because he knows what he's doing. Um, So don't think at that point if you're not a you know dedicated scholar of Spinoza or Kant, oh he's, he's forgotten his audience or it was just a bit of a ruse to get me to buy the book Uh, But he's forgotten his audience anyway, and this is no longer for me, so I'll just close it and give up. If you feel like that, don't. Uh, Don't do that, because there's a reason at this point in the book that he momentarily gets you into the complexity of these philosophers as they try and scale this mountain of truth and come so close to the top. And the reason is this, that he's actually setting up a critique of both of these philosophers that once you get past that section, you realize is extremely relatable and he's been writing for you the entire time. And their critique is like this, that for Spinoza and for Kant as philosophers, they try, they spend, they dedicate their lives to developing very sophisticated worldviews, uh, really richly complex philosophies that they try and use as philosophies of life. And it's really hard to follow them step by step up challenging terrain, up a mountain, and you feel exhausted um, if you've kept up with them all the way up to the top. But what they offer you when they get to the top, that the pinnacle of their philosophies is, um, he uses this illustration, that they stretch out one hand towards God. They've come so close to trying to get this as high as they can to the truth about their the creator. And with one hand, they reach out for him, and with another, they push him away. That's the best that they can offer you. As, and, and so the, re- the reward that you get for following up this exhausting mountain, step by step, is nothing. Mm-hmm. It vaporizes into nothing. And you don't get life with the living God through their philosophical strivings. And then after he's taking you, you've tr- he tries to get you to follow them up to the top of the mountain. And he doesn't tell you this is unsatisfying. He leaves you to feel it. Then, once you've felt it, he tells you, here's why um, people don't you know, spend their whole lives being dedicated Spinozists. Mm-hmm or why Kant has a vague, or, uh, he has a specific kind of influence. You know, he made people very moralistic for a while, and uh, has some kinds of influence, but people don't spend their whole lives trying to be very rigorous Kantians in a very deliberate way, and with the huge effort that that takes intellectually and personally, because if you were to do that, they can't offer you a relationship with the living God. They expect so much exertion from you, and what you get from it is nothing. It just turns to dust and ashes in your mouth. So there's a very deliberate reason that, there's one section of the book that's very demanding for philosophers. And if you're, if you're not a trained philosopher, uh, as I'm not, it, it's really tough to translate. So uh, <laughs> at that point in the book, but there's a, there's a deliberate purpose there. So when you get to that point, don't give up. When you feel exhausted climbing that mountain, um, don't worry if you have moments of thinking, this is not easy. Um, the author knew that, and I'd ask you to trust them on that front. So don't give up midway through because the conclusion that you get to afterwards is, is really wonderful in this book. Um, the conclusion c- teaches, well, points you to all that the book can teach you about the importance of worldview, about the reality of world vision, and the way that I haven't said anything about personality yet, and it's half a third of the title, the way that understanding the need to move from your world vision and identify what it is, what's your starting point, what compass have you been given, the need to move from that to a worldview it's the thing that actually shapes who you, are, shapes your personality. And there are worldviews that can shape your personality in very distorted ways, but the, the core of this book is actually the argument that the gospel is a worldview unto itself. The gospel is the this standard by which your world vision should be judged, and the gospel is the thing that when it is applied within your life, reshapes you, um, and then it forms your personality as you grow in wisdom actually, as you move from the, the subjectivity of your starting point in your world vision to the truth, to the, the, the God who objectively has the, the most perfect, wise, infinite um, view of, of the world and life within it. So I, I've spoken a lot about worldview and world vision, given you a teaser into what the book has to say about personality, but I hope that above all if you read the book when you read the book, um, that it stretches you to think about the gospel in ways that that maybe you haven't before. And this is a great book to do that. When I read it, I was blown away. As I said, I don't take credit for it. I'm just the custodian. Um, but to me, it seemed tragic that this book had gone untranslated. So I'm really excited that it has been translated and um, hope that it's a blessing uh, to you. So thank you for your attention. I think we have some time for questions, if you have them. Yes? How do you think that J.H. Bobbing's time and experience as a missionary, particularly, has influenced the way he thought about or wrote his work? Um, Oh, hugely. Um, Yeah, for me, this is what makes him such an interesting theologian to to deal with. Uh, So I mentioned, for example, that he wrote a commentary on the New Testament. One of the things that makes his New Testament commentary so interesting is that a lot of the time he will point out how Eastern and Western readers would read this particular biblical text, whichever text he's commenting on. So he's trying to apply the text to to both, um, thinking about Western people. And Eastern for him is is quite a broad brush term, but he thinks in terms of worldview, it's identifiable. So people who are primarily shaped by Confucianism or, or Buddhism, or Hinduism. Um, and th- the significance of that is that when you, so when you read his biblical commentary, uh, his New Testament commentary, he makes you aware all the time that you're not just some neutral reader who's reading it and not in a cultural location. He reminds you regularly that if you're a Western person reading this text, an Eastern person will bring a, a different world vision. Uh, and as a Western person you do that too, so there's, that's a, such a helpful thing. He, so he, he grew up as the son of a pastor. So Herman Bavink's brother was a pastor. And um, so J.H. Bavink's dad was was a really noted Augustan enthusiast. So he was very involved with um, Augustan conferences, and popularizing Augustan in their Dutch context. J.H. so he grows up in that family environment and Herman loved Augustine as well. And Augustine obviously is an, a North African theologian. So when J.H. Bavinck spends this time, especially in his second period in Indonesia, where he's this Hudson Taylor-like figure, um, it really shapes what he wants to, d- how he understands um, the significance of Augustine to, to Western culture and, there and ho- how to reach um, uh, unreached people with the gospel, so Eastern peoples in his context. Um, so the way that the, the Augustine comes to feature in his thought at this point in life is that um, being so deeply embedded in a culture that, that hadn't been reached by, substantially reached by Christianity yet um, so made him very aware of w- what it's like to live in an animistic culture, what it's like to believe in you know this world of spirits that you're battling against all the time, and the, the kind of superstitious rituals that go with this, so, um, and it made him revisit Augustine to realize that actually Augustine overcame a world like that, a pre-Christian world, a cosmological way of living in the world that then becomes a theologized way of of imagining the world. um, Being a a missionary makes him revisit Augustine and really reshapes his missiology as well because he becomes very concerned with um, helping non-Western people connect with Augustine as a non-Western, as a pre-Western person who becomes a Christian. Uh, So in all kinds of different ways um, it shapes his thought. And it shapes a lot of his output as well as a writer. Um, He writes lots and lots of missiology and spends decades teaching it, um, but with uh, such a fascinating perspective because of this life that he lived. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for Spinoza, um, so he has huge intellectual respect for the complexity of Spinoza's philosophy. Um, I, I hadn't read a lot of Spinoza before I translated this book and then went away and spent a good bit of time trying to read him and emerged with a lot of intellectual respect for Spinoza as well. Um, but w- So Spinoza is, for him, th- this high point of um, uh of a particular kind of, um, I guess you know, rationalist philosophy that Spinoza tries to combine with loving God, so he thinks that Spinoza was this brilliant philosopher, and Spinoza seemed really to love God. Um, but the weakness of that is that Spin- he didn't think Spinoza's philosophy accounted for why he should love God. So he has both of these things together because he needs them, but they they don't spring from the same source. Okay. So um, for him, Spinoza is just this uh, profound thinker um, and who also demonstrates this uh, human uh, demonstration that he's made in the image of God. Um, But for Kant, um, uh, he thinks that Kant is just the the apex of what Western philosophy tried to produce um, um, in terms of overcoming um, a particular, aversion to paradox that a lot of philosophers got shipwrecked on beforehand. I mean, the, the, I don't spend too long getting into the, the weeds of this particular dense section. Um, but the, the, so Kant um, has, uh, so he, 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 he gets into um, like abductive arguments for, for God, uh, and th- this is the best, again, that, that such a sophisticated philosopher can produce. Um, but it doesn't give you the, again the r- a relationship with a living God, so a God who needs to be there as a consequence of particular ways of understanding the world. So, um, so th- there is there's favorite philosophers, I guess, in a Western kind of context. But uh, Hegel? no, Hegel doesn't really feature in this. So he, Hegel features in some of his other writings, um, but he's yeah, uh, he, he's in the book, I should say. He's, he's mentioned in it, but he, he doesn't feature in that sense of sophistication. So yeah. Yes, Scott. Um,
0: so I'm interested in his use of Augustine. Is he self-conscious about, is he, does he see himself as presenting and applying Augustine? Or does he see himself as doing something entirely mm. new? Or how, how does he locate himself within mm. the Christian tradition?
1: Um, how does J.H. Bavinck locate Augustine within Christian tradition? Oh, OK. So is, is, he, is he thinking he's doing something new? Or is he saying,
0: mm. I'm doing a practical, missiological application of mm. Augustine? Okay,
1: so. so Augustine is implicitly on many of the pages of this book, but he doesn't present this book as, you know, let's all talk about Augustine. Um, but the, the psychological paradox from Augustine's Confessions is profoundly important in this book, uh, as it is throughout, um, throughout J. H. Bavink's work. So the paradox of um, every human life is spent both looking for and hiding from God, and we do both of those rather than it being an either or. Um, so he uses this as a critique of, of worldview building, actually, and the idea that you should have a, you need to build a worldview and move towards it because you need to move towards God, but also humans post-fall do that whilst also hiding from God, and that gives worldview building a lot of humility in this book um, because you you really need to do it. It's very important, but you also have to do so recognizing that, that you're a sinner and that, um, that you're, uh, you have this double posture towards God. Um, so Augustine's really important in that regard. In this particular book, um, I think the way that he that he locates himself within Christian tradition in relation to Augustine much further back is that J. H. Bavink argues in another one of his books that Augustine is the architect of Western culture. Um, so Western culture is the fruit of Augustine as the root. Uh, so Augustine overturns a world that was there before the West and Christianizes the Western imagination, so he he takes us away. Augustine really destroyed Greco-Roman pantheism and De Trinitate by Augustine, then changes how Western people think in relation to um, the idea of the divine. And then the Confessions moves Augustine's, uh, through the Confessions, Augustine moves us from a cosmological imagination about the world to a theologized imagination. You live your life in relation to a, a creator, singular, a monotheos. Um, and then Western culture is what comes from that um, and J.H. Bavink locates himself very much as someone who is within, he, he recognizes that he's a Westerner and no Augustine, no J.H. Um But he, he sees himself very much in, as, as a neo-Calvinist as well, I mean he's just inexplicable within, uh, other than through that tradition. But I think what he tries to do in a non-Western context is really interesting because as I mentioned in relation to well, responding to your question there, that when he goes to Java in the second period, he, he's almost like an apostle for Augustine. Um, he's really concerned with telling Augustine's story rather than um, thinking, you know, well I could tell you the story of how some Dutch person in you know 1936 became a Christian. For him, that person has still been formed in very Christian soil, and um, the story of coming to faith is not very relatable in comparison to. Let me tell you about Augustine when he was a Manichaean inquirer and, then, uh, and uh, then he becomes a Christian and it's moving from darkness to light and without um, a Christianized world around him. Um, that story is much more relatable um, and in, ver- in, 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 in broad kind of paradigmatic terms. He thinks that it's a conversion in the same kind of world that these Javanese people still inhabited. So we find him giving lots of lectures on Augustine's confessions, just telling his life story in Javanese to Javanese people, um, popularizing a lot of literature on Augustine. And of course, he wants them to read Augustine so that they'll read the Bible, because that's what Augustine read. Um, But he's he's this really fascinating um, evangelist for Augustinianism, something like that, as a way to grow native Christian fruit in that soil. So I, I wrote an article on it, last year that I titled Planting Tulips in the Rainforest as a way of trying to encapsulate what he's not trying to do, which is just export everything from the Netherlands as the fruit of Augustine. Instead you you take the the root and plant it in in the rainforest to see what grows there. Yes. in in how you're developing your knowledge. Yeah, okay. So in the book, um, you can think of the categories of world vision and worldview in really, you know, absolute terms, like a pure world vision that never becomes anything else ever, and a pure worldview that is, you know, you've reached the goal. Um, A pure worldview does exist. That is God's view of the world. Um, God is, is truly objective in um, the way that only God could be and having a view of the entire world um, and all the wisdom that, that entails as well. Um, there are humans who live extremely passively, who, who live completely unexamined lives. Um, Arguments who do that, he thinks. But actually, for most of us, we're somewhere on a spectrum, some kind of gradient scale between pure unexamined world vision and, well, none of us can it gets to God's worldview, but some of us are further along the scale of seeking wisdom than others. Um, so the goal here is to recognize that y- y- you could have the terms very separately, but most of us are s- somewhere in examining our lives. Um, but um, you know, people do long for s- something. You know, we're, we're made to, to be to exist towards God, to, uh, towards our Creator, as the image of God. And, you know, even th- though the fall has happened, that hasn't entirely gone away for J.H. Baving because he's a Calvinist. So people do still have that Godward impulse, but it, it, because he's so Augustinian, that doesn't, the impulse doesn't go in the right direction. So for a lot of us, you know, we'll, we'll test out our world visions, but we test them by, by the, the wrong standards, not by the gospel. Um, and For J.H. Baving, the gospel that is revealed by God. Um, so people are, humans are trying, you know, they're not all monolithic. They're trying to grow, to develop, but the standards by which we do so vary a lot. And then the book is an argument for Christians to understand the gospel as the thing that that you need to, the center of moving from a world vision towards a world view. So one way that you could think about the book, he doesn't use the term, but it's kind of a book about sanctification, but thinking about sanctification in, in quite novel categories. But really what he's talking about is how does the gospel sanctify you? And bearing in mind that you are a distinct individual. So, the effects of the fall um, have corrupted each of us distinctly. So, for, so for J.H. Baving, if you think about um, worldview, okay? So, I said already that worldview for him is something that you use to explain the, the collective, the whole culture. Um, so, you could think of, um, you know, if you have a room full of people who've grown up in the United States, you will find um, that there's a distinct Americanness about everyone in that room, although you're all individuals as well. And then if you took a room full of people who've grown up in mainland China, there'll be something that's common there as well. You know, They're, they're all, all obviously formed by the same culture, so there's a worldview there that shapes all of them, and yet they'll all be v- distinct individuals. Um, so worldview view um, uh, uh, corresponds to world vision like that. But this, he's thinking about all of this within a theological framework where you have a very uh, rich doctrine of sin and the, the, the way that sin means that we'll all be uniquely disordered versions of the worldviews that shape us. Um, so the, the way that the gospel will apply to your life will reshape you distinctively. So the gospel doesn't make us clones of one another. Um, he has a, it's a really helpful theology of sanctification where the gospel sounds a bit Joel Osteen, but it makes you the best version of you. <laughs> um, but you can affirm that as a Calvinist in a, in a much richer sense through, through a book like this. Uh, so I, I, I think of it, actually, as a book about sanctification. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: One last question? Yeah. Really Dr. Ovi have a question. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Dr. Eglint, does J.H. Bobbie, would you consider him a second generation neo-Calvinist?
1: Um, yes. Yeah, so he's a second generation very much so. Um, we can say that in a historical sense. Um, so when J.H. Beving was a, a young student at the Free University of Amsterdam, his classmates were people like um, Hermann Duyeverd, um, Hendrik Kramer, so all these neo-Calvinists who became very prominent in missiology and philosophy and so on in the, the mid 20th century. So yeah, he, he is second generation. Um, J.H. Batling's own take on what made the second generation different to the first is really fascinating. Um, so if you read Herman and you look for um, hermeneutics, you know, how is he reading the Bible, Old Testament in relation to new and vice versa, um, you find that he's in the tradition of um, you know, Dutch reformed typological reading of scripture. And that goes way back to the Belgic Confession that's just baked into how um, scripture is being read. Uh, it's in the, the Heidelberg Catechism instructs you in this um, very clearly as well that the gospel is revealed in first in paradise and then through the patriarchs and the prophets and so on. Um, so there is that way that's normal. This is just how you approach the Bible. But in hermon, you don't find um, um, you know, long extended discourses on how to do redemptive historical hermeneutics. It's just there. It's a given. This is how you read the Bible. Um, but J.H. Bavink's take on what made the second generation of neo-Calvinists different is that this became extremely significant to them. Um, so um, he wrote a book later in his life on, it's, it's called Something Like Priorities for the Church in Dutch, and it's a reflection on what it was like to be a second generation neo-Calvinist. And he said that in his generation, that um, the people of his generation rediscovered the idea of history as something that you can write on a truly epic scale. Um, and that history is actually uh, so huge, you know, it can be mind-blowingly expansive. And they got this um, by reading a, a German guy called Oswald Spengler um, who wrote a book called The Decline of the, um, the, the West. And it's a, it's a massive multi-volume c- uh, m- macro history of civilizations across the world. It's, it's a phenomenally huge work in scope. And it's, it's really history on a very, very grand scale. So they read that, and that blew their minds that you could think about history in such huge world-spanning s- terms. And then before that, they then read Hegel um, and then discovered, hey, through Hegel, he can give you a, a very fascinating account of how history develops and why, and think about it in, in huge terms. But then the second generation went back to Augustine and read The City of God and realized whoa, do you know what? Actually, the Bible is the the grandest, most epic history. Um, and it actually takes you beyond history to God. Uh, um, so then they realized that they didn't really need Spengler or, um, or or Hegel to do this. They could just do it with Augustine. And actually, they can just do it with the Bible. So then they get really, really into redemptive historical hermeneutics um, massively. So it's much more prominent for the second generation than for the first. So then you start to think of neo-Calvinists in the second generation, like Ritter-Boss and. You know, who get very, very into um, this as a way to read the Bible. Um, so he, that's his take anyway on what made them distinctive, that this you know, epic, redemptive h- history becomes much more significant. And he thinks that it made their preaching different to the first generation. He was critical of that. He thought sometimes they read things into texts that weren't there. But he said fundamentally, I'm really glad that I was born when I was and was a second generation because, because of all that it showed me about Christ revealed in Scripture.
0: Please join me again in thanking Dr. Aguirre. Thank you.